You're talking about wet markets. So many people don't realize what's happening. Seeing it in person, well, there's my life before I saw this, and now there's going to be my life after. It's not only that they're killing them and eating them, but intentional torture. The cruelty is unmitigated. Here today interviewing Odessa Gunn at her little trooper rescue ranch farm in Northern California. Odessa, thank you so much for being with us today. Man, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for coming all the way. I'm really thrilled. Well worth the journey. Former World Cup road cyclist, current pet product guru, animal activist, rescue center developer, and community award winner, Odessa Gunn isn't easy to label. The funniest story that I've heard about you is that you once set free an entire tank of lobsters. Is that true? <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I think because, I mean, I grew up in a lobster fishing village in Nova Scotia on Cape Breton Island. Right. And I grew up around a lot of lobster fishermen and we ate a lot of lobster. And so I think that for me, you know, I've always had a soft spot for them and I have a lot of guilt. And so that day was some kind of like cathartic uh, I don't know like exorcism of sorts or like trying to like make up for past mistakes or you know it was an interesting evening because we all headed out for dinner and um, we walked into the restaurant and everybody went to the table and I saw these like sad lobsters in a filthy tank you know and I just I just asked them in my broken Spanish this was in Spain to buy them and I loaded them in the car and I drove to the ocean and set them free. So do you think, was that the start of, of you rescuing animals or what was the very first time that you realized that this was going to be your life? Man, I think I realized it when I was a kid. I was always rescuing bugs and any kind of little animal like baby birds, mm -hmm. frogs, toads, you name it. I, I love all of the creatures. So I knew from a really young age that this was, this was what I was supposed to do. Did you always grow up with animals? Were your parents animal lovers as well? I think I got my compassion from my parents, but I mean, I know I'm next level. And so... They, or maybe a couple levels. A yeah. couple <laughs> levels. They certainly didn't have like 10 dogs sleeping with them like I do. But yeah, I think I came, it came from my parents for sure. Mm -hmm. I just, I've always had an affinity for animals and a connection to them. But you didn't go to school for that. You, you went a different uh, route in your career. So tell us about that. Well, I studied uh, English and fine art in university. And then I just did a couple odd jobs. I was an aerobic instructor for 11 years. Oh, wow. 12 years. Yeah. And so that was my primary thing. And then I discovered the bike because I was injured from teaching aerobics and running and all the kinds of abuse I did to my body. And so then I became a pro bike racer. I never thought I would love anything as much as I love animals. And bike racing and bike riding comes in as a close second place. But you had an accident, right? And that stopped your career? And Yeah. In the year 2000, I had a bad crash. The brakes weren't set up properly on my bike. And I hit a corner and I hit a guardrail in a tree. And then it herniated six discs in my back. Oh, and no. Yeah. And so and that's when one of those life moments where it's like, well, it's time to pivot, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I retired from racing and I kind of just started, you know, volunteering for a cat rescue. And then it just from there escalated. You know, what I find interesting about that is, is so many of the guests we've had on the show have had these pivoting moments. So do you think that this happened to you for a reason? Yeah. And I think I found the reasoning in what happened to me. 
in my life anyway, in my experience, sometimes the darkest points of my life, like the worst things that have happened, ended up being the best things. Life has another plan for us, and we just need to roll with it, you know, and be open to it. The dedication and the training that you put yourself through in your, your cycling world, I feel like it's just completely transferred over into what you're doing now because I see you with just such a mission and such determination to get this next project done. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh 100% I've kind of channeled all of that passion and obsession a little bit into rescuing animals, but it's okay because, man, the world needs it right now more than ever. I remember when we met over a year ago and we spent over an hour on the phone talking about what I do, what you do, what our dreams were. And I remember you telling me that you were going to make it your mission to stop not only the China dog trade for meat, but that across the world. And, you know, so many people don't realize what's what's happening there. This is our first morning in China. We're going now to a local rescue. This is kind of the best case scenario if you're a dog in China. These dogs were all taken from meat trucks. So they were going to be tortured and killed. But now they're living here and uh, the spread of disease is just rampant. And they, I mean, there's mange, there's distemper. The smell of death is overwhelming. There's a lot of dead dogs in bags outside of the shelter. So, man. So how did you get involved in that? And we're sitting here discussing this, and there's actually one of the dogs you saved from China sitting yeah. right next to you. Yeah, this is Tattersall. She uh, she's came to me from Beijing, and this is Honey. She's from Mexico. Um, the China thing, man, that's so tough. I found out about it on social media. I was um, following Mark Ching, and he kind of pioneered the whole battle against the dog meat trade in China. And I saw, you know, the videos and the still images of this horrific stuff that was happening. And I wanted to see for myself. And so I've been over there a few times. And it's crazy because the torture and the cruelty and the abuse and the neglect is right there for everybody to see. You just have to walk down the street, drive out into the countryside, and you can see it. They don't hide it. It's weird. It's I can't tell if it's it's that they don't think it's that bad or if it's that and if it's a type of arrogance. I don't understand the culture very well. Seeing it in person was kind of one of those moments in my life where I'm like, well, there's my life before I saw this and now there's going to be my life after seeing this, right? So yeah. I know that I can't not do anything yeah. about it. And I've been there and I've flown dogs back. I've rescued dogs like from wet markets. You know, I've told everybody, I've posted about it on social media. I think that maybe the solution has to come from internal, you know, from mm -hmm. China. And with COVID happening and their image globally was tarnished drastically, but then their wet markets are open again. I don't understand why they continue to get away with it. You're talking about wet markets and some of the listeners may not even know what that is. So can you just give a brief overview as to what a wet market is? Yeah. So it's just basically like a farmer's market that we have here, you know, and they have them all over China in every little town and village. Um, and they just have every kind of animal you can imagine. So the, I guess, I don't know why they use the word wet, but yeah, it neither. just is in reference to the animals being alive at the market. So, mm -hmm. and they're slaughtered on site. So, but they're, you know, they're piled with a chicken on top of a dog on top of a cat. And it's really horrible. Mm -hmm. And there's some, I mean, I saw some horrific things, uh, this 
little kid came up and asked for a rabbit's paw and they just took the rabbit out of the cage and chopped the paw off and threw the rabbit back in the cage. And, you know, they have goats hogtied on the ground and there's people walking all over them and then they'll have, you know, a massive bucket full of turtles, you know, and they're all clamoring over each other and, you know, the ones on the bottom. It just, the cruelty is unmitigated. These are just local markets and people are walking by and it's it's normalized there, you know. We hide it away here. I'm not yeah. saying that it's any better. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I don't want to sound like I'm picking on China, but it's all over the world. Yes. They're just different degrees of, you know. It is. So much to concealing do. Concealing it. So much to do. So I was telling someone that I was coming here today and, you know, what was one of the things that attracted me to your work and it was actually on an airplane. And she said, well, what's different than what we do in America? You know, why is it different? And I told her about some of the torture that they do prior to, mm. to killing the animals. And, you know, for me, that, that was a game changer. You know, it's not only yeah. that they're killing them and eating them, but, you know, can you talk a little bit about something that you saw? Intentional torture, yeah. Intentional torture. Yeah, well, I guess uh, a Chinese visionary a number of years ago said that uh, when you torture the animal for as long as possible, like I think it's up to 40 hours or something like that, before slaughtering them in many different horrific ways, the meat will cool your blood in the summer and then it gives men some kind of sexual prowess of some sort. I don't know. But yeah, it's ridiculous of course you know that's one thing so there's the intentional torture and and i purposely didn't witness any of that but then there's the then there's just the torturous lives they live like they are so neglected and they're in these aquarium type cages and 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 you name it and then these metal cages and they're all squished in together dogs are you know like the ones on the bottom have suffocated to death and then you know they're defecating all over each other they don't get food or water for you know, days, weeks, months on end. Tattersail here, she was in a market in one of the bags, you know, where they have just the head oh, yeah. showing and they're hanging yeah. on the wall, like a hook on the Gosh. waiting, just like, so it's, yeah, it's, it's. I just can't even imagine. And it's, that's the cutest dog I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah, she looks I mean, better she's with, just with precious. a better haircut. She's, she's precious. She is really precious. They're all precious, you know, and it's hard for me to, sleep at night knowing it's happening and it's to the tune of 52 million a year an estimate of 52 million dogs a year and like 4 million cats a year it's insane so it's not just the yulin dog meat festival people think that oh there's a hundred thousand dogs that or fifteen thousand i can't remember the number at yulin that get tortured and killed but it's all year it's all over the country it's everywhere and it's it's not the entire population of china but it's roughly 300 million people that still eat dog meat there and so I just wish that we could come together as a globe you know do you remember back in the day when there was the hole in the ozone Mm -hmm. and we all came together every single country on this planet Mm -hmm. agreed to do away with aerosol or whatever it was Mm -hmm. that was contributing to eating the hole in the ozone I mean it's not just about the dogs and the cats and the rabbits and, and the sheep and the you know what we're doing our practices are are, are killing all of the life on the planet. We, we, can't, right. we can't serve seven plus billion people meat. It's not sustainable. It's mm-hmm. not possible. And so if we could just come together on this one thing, you know, we, we could slow the, 
the fires and the floods and the hurricanes and the tsunamis and the pandemics. I think that just if people agreed to eat less meat once a month, you know, something, I mean, I hate to, to bring that up, but it's, it's, it's true. it would be the biggest thing that we could do to reverse what's happening on our planet right now, which mm-hmm. is really terrifying. It is, and it's changed so much just in my lifetime. So just think about what's going to be for our grandchildren and, yeah. and future generations. That's so. just it. Like, what yeah. kind of, what are we leaving for them? Right. You know? And so I think that for whatever I do in my lifetime, I hope that I'm contributing to the solution. Let's talk about what you've decided to do. You started your own rescue organization, correct? Yes. So we started Little Trooper Ranch. And our mission statement is to foster and perpetuate unconditional love. I love that. We're focused kind of right now on dogs, but I'm a wildlife release site for Stomach Honey Wildlife Rescue. So we're going to do a little bit of wildlife, you know, fostering as well and farm animals and Mm -hmm. basically whatever creature needs us. If there's like a sea Mm -hmm. slug that I can help, come on over. So I have a question for you because we want to grow, obviously, and make as big of an impact as we can. And your organization is huge and you have a lot of animals. How do you keep it sustainable? It's the daily challenge, 100%, because we've gone to almost $200,000 a month to operate. And that's before moving to this 100 acres. We're still on the 10 acres now. And, you know, it's there's very little state or government funding for our work, which is something, you know, maybe we do need to work on. You know, you have a few big um, fundraisers a year where you introduce people to your work and you're constantly telling your story to anybody mm-hmm. that'll listen. And it just starts to to escalate from there. It's a goal to start a low-cost clinic for, for people who can't really afford the, mm-hmm. you know, the VCA prices right now. Right. And, and then also a free clinic for for rescues who are doing like a a lot of work. I mean, I don't know how other rescues around here are able to bring in so many cats and dogs and spay and neuter them and microchip them. Like with where where are they, which vets are they taking them to? Mm -hmm. Cause that's, that's what you would be, all you would be doing is fundraising to pay for the, for the vet care. Yeah. But then at some point you realize that it's cheaper to have your own vet. Yeah. You know, that's the step that we took. We were 10 grand a month to the vet clinic and I thought, well, for ten grand a month, you could have a vet or two on yeah, staff, yeah. you know, and then, and then they're just doing the work, and then you can, you know, turn around and help the other rescues, and that's what we do as well. We yeah. take in the animals that need surgery that they can't afford, so that's where we try to strive to really be different. So I'm super proud of you, Odessa, because you know the animals there's running around, and you can tell that they're well cared for. And I know that's a lot. It's a lot for you. Thank you so much. You have to provide a certain standard of care, and if that means we only like save 75 animals a year, then so be it. You have to learn to say no, and yeah, yeah. and so many people are like, oh, I know you just take them all, you know. I know you don't. I say I say no every day, yeah. hundreds of times sometimes, and. You just have to put that out of your mind because you know if you don't help them, a lot of times they're not going to get the help. Mm -hmm. And that's tough on us because you want to help them all, but you have to be smart about it, right? Absolutely. Another factor here, limiting factor for me is uh, because I have a great board of directors, but they don't live on site with me here, you know? Mm -hmm. And so if there's a fire, I need to have a manageable um, number of animals that I can evacuate by myself. So. Evacuation's huge. It's huge. It's, it's, a, it's a new reality now in California. It we is. used to have fall. Now we have fire season. Yeah. So, And I know you lost a home already to fire. 
So, and you lost everything, didn't you? Um, yeah, well, I I, went, I had moved out before the fire, and okay. we were airbnb out the house. So okay. I lost a lot of stuff, but not everything. Okay, I did, good. I lost a goat in the fire, and that oh. was really tragic, really horrible, a really special goat. So, yeah, that was the worst part of it for me. But, yeah, yeah a lot of people lost a lot. And it's different for us in Florida. We have hurricanes, and we have to mass evacuate. You know, we call it Noah's Ark because you have to get 350 animals off of a property, you know, but... We can see it coming. We have advanced okay. notice, and yeah. you don't have that here. Well, it's getting better, but I have to say, I would just like one of your posts. I'll never forget it. It's it was like it's one of my favorite Alaqua posts, and I love all your posts. But there was a an image of, of a boat with an opossum on it, and she was all wet and yeah. you know traumatized looking. That touched my heart. I love opossums for starters, mm-hmm. but the fact that you know that's. I'm not sure if that animal was, you were caring for that animal or she, she just happened to be on your property at the time, but it was just so heroic and special. Well, thank you. That is actually a very good story. And that possum is actually saved the rest of the refuge from drowning. Um, yeah, the floods came in so fast. Uh, the hurricane is not what made us flood. It was the flash floods from the river and the bay pushing in at the same time. And we went over that morning and the horses were in about a foot of water, but we got everybody where they had some high ground and actually broke my foot that morning trying to help the animals. And I came back to the house, which is across the street. And I told my husband, I was like, I've got to go back and get that possum. I saw her clinging to a fence. So I got a kayak and pushed it out and shoved her on it. And when I was doing that, I realized now the water was over my knees. And I quickly went across the street to where the refuge is. And I'll be if it didn't go from a foot to four to five feet in about an hour. And the goats were swimming and the pigs were swimming. Holy and, cow. and we had to put animals on paddle boards and kayaks to get them to safety. And if I had not gone back for that possum, everyone would have drowned. And I can't even imagine living with yourself if something like that happened. Oh, my gosh. I got goosebumps. Holy cow. Well, that's why that image is imprinted in my mind. That's such a special thing. I just have so much love for you and what you do. I mean, for the people that save opossums and the, you know, the tiniest, most vulnerable creatures and then, then consequently, like all of your animals. Yeah. She saved them all. And you know what I found is after I started Aliqua, we moved out to the country too, you know, we're kind of in the middle of nowhere. After I started the work and people just started coming and they were all like-minded people. And then all of the sudden, like you just bring in these amazing souls that think like you and act like you and are there for the same reasons that you are. And, and some of my best friends that I found have come to me because of the work. And it's an amazing feeling. The biggest gift so far, aside from saving the animals, which was like an obvious expected gift that I knew that was coming, but I didn't realize that you know, if you build it, they will come. I didn't realize I started this nonprofit and all of a sudden these amazing people are flocking to me. And it's, it's just like something I, that kind of blindsided me in the best of ways. Mm -hmm. You know, I have like all these new friends of all different ages, like from a 12 year old to like an 84 year old. All walks of life too. All walks of life. And it's such a gift. It is such a gift. I I say that all the time too. If you build it, they will come. And it's so true. Yep. So true. Well, get ready. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> animal passion hero. Who's yours? You. Oh. Favorite wild animal? Frogs. Single most important thing viewers can do to help stop animal cruelty? Stop eating them. 
Favorite name for an animal? George Clooney. <laughs> What's on your to-do list that you just can't get to? Oh, wash my truck. Favorite movie? Dumb and Dumber. Have you ever felt that your animal passion has gone too far? Never. Heck no. <laughs> <laughs> For more information about the Animal Passion series and host Lori Hood, visit aliqua.org. And don't forget to check out the Animal Passion podcast YouTube channel. Thanks for listening.